Okay, hello everyone and welcome to the Actus podcast, Talking CDI, the nation's only program dedicated to the clinical documentation integrity profession. The Actus podcast is a bi-weekly program dedicated to bring you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news and information relevant to the CDI profession and Actus. Today, Wednesday, May 13th, marks our 152nd program. Today's featured Actus solution is Staying Engaged. Actus presents virtual education and community. We know that practicing social distancing is a must during the COVID-19 outbreak, but that doesn't mean education and networking must stop. In fact, they're more important than ever. So we're encouraging you to join us uh, June 17 to 19 for Staying Engaged. Actus presents virtual education and community. This is a chance to earn valuable CEUs, uh, receive part of the same sessions you've come to love at the Actus Conference, modified for COVID-19 and um, the recent events of the past few months, but also to network with your colleagues and peers in a series of moderated chats, all from the easy-to-use Actus Conference app. So check that out, new program out, Kevin, up uh, June 17 to 19. We hope to have you there. Okay, so my name is Brian Murphy, Director of Actus, the Association of Clinical Documentation Integrity Specialists, and I'm, of course, your host for today's program, Documentation Pearls for COVID-19. I'm joined today by my familiar co-host at left, Sharm Brody. Sharm is a full-time instructor for the CDI boot camps, as well as a subject matter expert for Actus. She has more than 35 years in the healthcare industry including areas of nursing and consulting and a variety of roles prior to joining us here at Actus, and we're thrilled to have her back on the show. So welcome, Sharm. Thank you, Brian. It's been a while. I'm very happy to be back. Absolutely. And we also have our special guest today. Uh, he's been a guest in the past, and we're very glad to have him back as well, uh, Timothy Brundage. Tim is medical director of the Brundage Group and a past Actus Advisory Board member. He's a diplomat of the American Board of Internal Medicine and the co-chair of the CDI Committee for the American College of Physician Advisors. Dr. Brundage frequently lectures to physician groups nationwide on CDI and denials management. You probably have seen him. He's a frequent presenter at the uh, our annual Actus Conference, our Actus Florida chapter meetings. He speaks with the HEMA. Um, Recently, he also was selected by the Tampa Bay Business Journal as a Healthcare Heroes Award winner in the Healthcare Educator category, and we're thrilled to have him on today's show to educate us a little bit on uh, documentation and COVID-19, so welcome, Tim. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right. As I always do, I'm going to start with a poll question uh, related to today's topic. Um you know, it's funny, as I see that now, the, the poll hasn't been updated, but let, let, I'm going to go ahead and um, I'm going to go ahead and skip over that for now until we can get that change made. We had a we had a question about people's greatest obstacle to accurate coding of COVID-19. So actually, why don't I'm, I'm going to verbalize this one. I'm going to ask folks to to weigh in uh, via the chat pod and we're going to work some of those into the program. So we are wondering what your greatest obstacles to accurate coding of COVID-19 are. Um, we've, we, we've heard from a few hospitals that have had very few or no obstacles, but um, other issues have been physicians documenting 
um, uncertainty or possible or probable in um, COVID-19 without a corresponding positive lab result. Uh, lack of documented linkage we know is an issue. Lack of definitive lab results uh, is obviously an issue with this diagnosis. And we're going to be getting into some of these questions uh, in just a few minutes on the show. So please send your comments in and we'll try to work those in uh, to the flow of the show as we go along. But as I mentioned, uh, Tim Brundage is our special guest today. Uh, Tim, welcome to the show and and thanks for being a part of the podcast. We're thrilled to have you on today and you've, you've been kind enough to uh, take some time out of your schedule and share a, a nice case study, which we're going to get into today as well. But, um, you know, I thought we could start with just maybe you could talk about some of these obstacles that you've seen to getting uh, COVID-19 accurately, accurately coded. Um, we know this is an issue and, and curious what you're seeing from your, your perspective here. Well, thank you, Brian. The first thing I would say is that we've come leaps and bounds, I think, as a nation and as a world um, in just a very short time. Remember that this disease was not on anyone's radar as recently as the start of 2020. So the, uh, the fact that we can test in-house um, at many of our hospitals, it's not even a send-out test anymore. We can tell you within an hour or so if the COVID-19 test is positive, we have the ability to really do a wonderful job, I think, uh, of serving our patients, getting them into the high risk, low risk, and ruled out categories uh, uh, quite quickly, um, which is a dramatic improvement in a very short amount of time. Um, I think that's a, a major issue. Now, one of the concerns we have is that there is a 30% false negative uh, with this test. So we have had several patients um, at one of my local hospitals where my partner, Dr. Brett Hogard has worked and they've had to test them three times before they get a positive test. And so that is a major stumbling block. It's a major hurdle. Um, and it's one of the reasons why the uncertain diagnoses, possible, probable, likely suspected COVID-19 not coding to the disease is a major uh, issue. And, and so that's one of the things that we have these diagnoses that we can use the uncertain language with, almost all of them. But COVID-19 is a notable exception, and, um, and that is creating major issues for us, especially in the face of a test that has a 30% false negative uh, rate. Right. You know, I'm getting a lot of comments coming in um, from our listeners about their things they're struggling with. I'll just read a few of them out getting sepsis present on admission or not, possible, probable, you just mentioned, lack of physician engagement, um, coding COVID-19 based on a positive test result alone, um, positive results at an outside hospital and not internal to their hospital. Uh, <clears throat> some, some have had only minimal cases and this is not hasn't been a big issue for them. Um, maintaining being up to date on the coding guide requirements and guidelines. We know there's been a lot that have come out from the AHEMA and the AHA on this issue, um, documenting even though negative COVID-19 and they still feel um, there's an issue there. Um, yeah, just a, a lot, a lot of uh, lack of supporting documentation, sepsis, 
hypercoagulable state. I think we're going to get into that a little bit later on the show and how to differentiate that from, from COVID or when they both appear together. So, mm-hmm. yeah, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, issues here that our folks are dealing with. Well, and I think that... Go ahead, Sharma. Okay, I was just going to have you elaborate a little bit, Tim, on the uncertainty um, with COVID-19. So if you do have physicians, and they've mentioned it in the poll question, if you do have physicians that are documenting probable or possible, how are you handling that scenario? What advice would you give these um, CDI people in the physicians? Well, the coding world can code COVID-19 if it's diagnosed COVID-19. But if there's uncertainty, suspected COVID-19, then they are not supposed to code the condition, but only code the symptoms associated with it. And so that's a a big issue. So the doctor sees a patient, they think that it is COVID-19. They have the opportunity to diagnose it clinically. They may say COVID-19. But if they use those uncertain terms, suspected COVID-19, now we are tasked with not coding it until there's a uh, confirmatory test or the doctor clinically just changes from using the words suspected to the confirmed just COVID-19. And so for that reason, it is a bit of a conundrum compared to our normal diagnoses where we are able to code uncertain diagnoses if documented at the time of discharge uh, using the words possible, probable, likely, suspected, compatible with, consistent with. Um, but obviously, this is an exception to that rule. So it is it is quite a uh, it's it's a new nuance for our CDI teams. Um, and I do think they need to query and they need to educate the doctor prior to the query. And I think that is the biggest challenge is you want the doctor to be a savvy documenter, a savvy diagnoser to understand the ramifications of, of his or her answer to the query prior to answering. You want a fully informed provider prior to querying. And that's very challenging uh, for most of our CDI teams. All right. I agree. That's that's one of the most important things. Make sure they are educated before you ever send them a query. Yeah, absolutely. And it's very difficult to do. It's very difficult to do. So we uh, are encouraging, obviously, the use of the manifestation, the uh, the secondary diagnoses, we want to link them together. So if the patient does have COVID-19, we want to know, does the patient have COVID-19 with pneumonia or without pneumonia? Because not all COVID-19 causes pneumonia. Some folks are totally asymptomatic. So once you have COVID-19, you only have one diagnosis, then you need to get those secondary diagnoses. And that's what Brian was talking about, about sepsis. So organ dysfunction, life-threatening organ dysfunction Uh, consequent to infection is our definition of sepsis. So as soon as we have that hypoxia, as soon as we have that altered mental status, as soon as we have that organ dysfunction of any time, acute kidney injury, even a type 2 myocardial infarction, at the doctor's discretion, we may use that or he or she may use that to diagnose sepsis. And then, of course, from a CDI perspective, we want them to also include the word severe or we want them to link it to the organ dysfunction. Uh, sepsis causing acute respiratory failure so we can code the severe sepsis code. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought maybe, Tim, that'd be a good opportunity to uh, kind of jump into that question. What what we're getting a lot is, you know, at what point is it appropriate to query for sepsis capture? Um, This person Mm -hmm. notes that COVID-19 patients have 
similar lab presentation, but not necessarily sepsis. For example, an organization currently follows sepsis 2 criteria for diagnosing sepsis. Uh, how would you apply this to COVID patients since they all could meet criteria with uh, fever and, and tachycardia? And let, and let me know, Tim, if you want me to pull up that, that case study to kind of supplement what sure. we've talked Certainly. about. Sure, certainly. Let me answer this question. We can sure. kind of jump into that case. It would be a nice segue. So um, my opinion is that COVID-19 can be asymptomatic. So you can have this virus without having any symptoms, without having any manifestations whatsoever. We know that. It's well reported. That means once you have organ dysfunction, once you have the SERS criteria tied to the infection, if you're a sepsis 2 organization, you may diagnose sepsis. If you're a sepsis 3 or a surviving sepsis campaign of 2016, or you're respecting the step one core measure, then you need organ dysfunction. So you need SERS criteria plus organ dysfunction for your step one core measure, or you need the SERS criteria alone if you're a sepsis 2 shop, or you need um, uh, organ dysfunction specified by SOFA if you're using sepsis 3. Because the infection can be asymptomatic, you do, once you have manifestations, it is my opinion that the doctor can and should diagnose all the things that are relevant and associated. So as soon as you meet sepsis criteria with COVID-19, you should be diagnosing that. As soon as there's organ dysfunction that's linked to infection, you should be diagnosing severe sepsis or diagnosing sepsis and linking the organ dysfunction acute respiratory failure in order to code this effectively. And those are the things we just need the doctors to know. Unfortunately, physicians are slow to change, like many people on earth. Mm -hmm. So if the doctor doesn't see the SERS criteria, they don't commonly link the organ dysfunction consequent to infection and call it sepsis. So they'll see a patient who has COVID-19 and an acute kidney injury, or COVID-19 and a pneumonia causing acute respiratory failure, but they don't take that leap and call it severe sepsis. And I think that's what they should do. They should be diagnosing these folks as severe sepsis. And of course, we need to look back. Once the diagnosis is made, we need to look back and see, was the diagnosis, was the diagnostic criteria present in the ER? Was it present on the H&P? Should it, can it be uh, present on admission? Um, because that would, of course, then drive the DRG to the sepsis DRG. And I don't think that's a financial issue uh, all the time. Lots of times it is. But uh, uh, complex pneumonia, which is where COVID-19 pneumonia will code, will code to that DRG-177, that respiratory diseases, which is where our complex pneumonias code, may actually pay even a little bit more or a little bit better than sepsis. So it's not necessarily a dollars and cents thing, it's an accuracy of the diagnosis thing. And, and that's what we want our doctors to know. We wanna label these folks uh, uh, as effectively and accurately as possible. And that's, that's one of the things I wanted to share, Brian, if you wanted to bring up the, the case study. I think it's, it's a really, uh, uh, it's really excellent documentation. So I wanna share this and first of all, I want to point out that this is a pre-bill mortality review that we did. This patient did pass away. The patient had suspected COVID-19. And so this, we took this chart before this chart was billed. The patient had passed away. And we looked for documentation opportunities. So as you look here, the physician advisor opinion here in yellow, that's my opinion. I basically said this is very high quality documentation. We always try to give kudos to the doctor when they do a good job. We want them to know that we're not always being a pain in their neck. 
<laughs> Sometimes their documentation is fantastic and we want to thank them for that. So this doctor documented the patient did indeed have septic shock. They did indeed have pneumonia. They did indeed have acute respiratory failure, acidosis, which of course supports that very high severity of illness. And they did link that to suspected COVID-19, but because they used suspected, that cannot and should not by rule be coded as COVID-19 and it was not. So I gave kudos to the coding team. However, once the COVID-19 test comes back, even post-mortem, if this patient passes away and then the COVID-19 test comes back positive, we don't need the doctor to clarify or specify with a query that the COVID-19 was positive. So this is one of those uh, coding nuances. If the COVID-19 test is positive, even if the doctor doesn't make the diagnosis, which he or she should, um, we can still code it because that's what the uh, direction tells us. And so that's a, a break from our normal, the doctor needs to diagnose it in order to code it. But COVID-19 is, is an example of when that is not necessary. So the last box there, some of the documentation education, Brian, that you see, mm -hmm. there was a rise of troponin. There was the documentation that the rise of troponin was due to demand ischemia. So that was what I suggested we query because we want to capture a type 2 MI. So a type 2 MI is a supply-demand mismatch MI. And so you have to look to see, the, did the patient meet criteria? So if you'll be so kind as to scroll down to the lab section. And they're, they're highlighted in yellow, Brian, if you just want to scroll down until you see gotcha. some yellow. Yep. Um, this is quite the case study. You'll, <laughs> yes, and we looked and, to see what the doctor documented, and he did a very excellent job. And so there you can see our troponin. So right there in the middle is troponin. You can see it started at 0 0.15. It rose all the way to 1.13. So the question is, the first question you have to ask is, is this an acute rise of troponin? And the answer is, if there is a rise of troponin by 20% over time, the fourth universal definition of acute MI, uh, published in Jack in 2018, tells us that's an acute uh, rise. So we did, we had that. This isn't just a rise. A 20% rise from 0 0.15 would be 0 0.18. But this patient went all the way to 1.13, which is in between seven and eight times the original. So this is a multi-factor rise of troponin. So that meets the definition of what is an acute myocardial injury. Then we need to say, well, if there's an acute myocardial injury, what was the cause of the injury? And if the cause of the injury is ischemia, then that is the definition of an acute MI. So the doctor said that the troponin rise was due to demand ischemia. What that doctor is telling us is that is the definition of a type 2 MI. Unfortunately, the doctor only labeled this demand ischemia, which means that doctor underdiagnosed this patient. And that's an opportunity for our CDI team. The CDI team should query the doctor and ask them to clarify and specify. Um, um, and they needed to, to, to do some education before that, uh, because that does meet the criteria for the definition of type 2 MI. And honestly, that's what we want the doctor to, doc to diagnose. We want them to doc diagnose to show the highest severity of illness, the highest risk of mortality possible, especially in a patient who, who passed away. So when we do a mortality review, we're reviewing for several things. We're reviewing for financial reasons. We want to make sure that the resource consumption is supported by the coded record. Does the, the hospital get paid effectively for the care they provided? That is one question. 
The second question is, what does our quality look like? Does our risk of mortality, severity of illness from the APR, DRG perspective, and if this is a CMS patient, is this patient going to be reported as a pneumonia, publicly reported death, or is this patient going to be reported as a severe sepsis, septic shock, which is where this patient did go, which has a higher risk of death because from a quality perspective, you want your observed to expected mortality ratio to be less than one. And of course, once the patient has passed away, your mortality is 100%. So you just have to make sure that the documentation supports that. So Brian, if you'd be so kind as to go up just a little bit, we'll, we'll see what the doctor put in his assessment and plan. He did a very excellent job, honestly. We can see, um, Yes, where it starts with number one, right? Right up, just up a little bit. And you can see that, um, um, go, go down just a little bit. There's the bilateral pneumonia. Now, the doctor diagnosed bacterial pneumonia versus COVID-19 versus pulmonary edema. And I think everyone in CDI thinks the word versus is like the bane of their existence. I want them to use the word and, bacterial pneumonia and COVID-19 or bacterial pneumonia due to suspected COVID-19 causing pulmonary edema. So that's one of the things we want to teach this doctor right here. And then the number two, you can see suspected COVID-19 virus infection. That's excellent documentation. Uh, we will test for that. We will see if it's positive or negative. We may have to test more than once. Of course, this patient passed away, so we we're only able to test once. Number three, acute respiratory failure with hypoxia and hypercapnia. Excellent documentation. Number four, shock. And then the doctor clarified mostly septic shock, which I think is accurate. This is a very nice documentation of septic shock. And then we've got our CAD and we've got our, uh, a rise of troponin and we missed that one. Then there's the diabetes type two controlled and then some alcoholic cirrhosis and other comorbid conditions that we want to capture to uh, affect the risk of mortality. Um, um, but obviously those are more chronic conditions. So those are the things that I wanted to cover and kind of share uh, a review, share how we're looking at these charts and share what we think the doctor should be documenting and diagnosing. And they did a very nice job, honestly, of making sure they tied in pneumonia, they tied in septic shock, they tied in acute respiratory failure, but we want them to link it, acute respiratory failure due to suspected COVID-19. And then of course, if the COVID-19 test comes positive, we can confirm it. But overall, this is very nice documentation, and I think the opportunity to query, as we discussed, was for the type 2 MI. And with that, Brian, I'll kind of uh, ask maybe you or Sharm have any comments about that? Well, it was an excellent case study. Really appreciate you walking us through this, and it does highlight the uh, importance of, of um, getting at some of these other underlying conditions, you know, in, in the midst of uh, clarifying uh, for COVID-19 as well. So. Um, just an excellent job there. Sharma, do you have anything you wanted to ask on that case study? Well, um, no, that, that I actually enjoyed watching it. Um, one of the things that you did touch on, though, and let's just, I wanted to clarify this. So you did touch on if they had pneumonia along with the COVID-19, having the physician link it. Now, just for the people that are listening, what if the physician hasn't linked it? Now, obviously, they, they should query, but would there ever be a case where they would actually code separately the pneumonia and the COVID-19 and sequence the COVID-19 first? I believe that there is a time when they would do that. If sepsis is not diagnosed, of course, then we would have, this would be a COVID-19, uh, uh, probably a COVID-19 principle. Now, not in this case because it wasn't confirmed, but if COVID-19 is confirmed, 
it will code, like I said, as a principal diagnosis, it will lead us to that uh, complex pneumonia DRG, and that would be appropriate. Now, if the COVID-19 doesn't cause pneumonia, then we would not have the, um, obviously have the diagnosis of pneumonia, because sometimes COVID-19, like I said, is asymptomatic, but really if it's asymptomatic, those folks are probably not gonna be admitted to the hospital. They're probably gonna be seen in the ER. They're probably gonna go home and do self-isolation. And so those folks that come into the hospital are gonna be folks who have medical necessity, medical necessity of hospitalization. And so you're gonna look at that to make sure that they're placed in the right level of care, inpatient observation or outpatient and of course, they only are going to get to the DRG uh, uh, point uh, if they're in inpatient care. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Tim. And maybe we could wrap up just with a brief discussion of, um, you know, we saw this coming in throughout the show as sort of, uh, you know, provider engagement at this time, given that especially in some of our more uh, you know, some of the places where the outbreak is at its worst, physicians are quite busy treat, dealing with the stress of treating these patients, especially, again, in those areas experiencing a surge. So I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on how to sort of thoughtfully or tactfully educate or communicate some of these concepts you were sharing today with physicians. Tough any time of year, but, uh, but probably even um, doubly so now. Um, if you had any advice. The sure audience would appreciate hearing about it. As far as educating the doctor, Brian? Yeah, just on educating him, especially, you know, in, in, in this time with, with many physicians being um, mm -hmm. quite overwhelmed and busy. Well, I think all of our education at this perspective is being done remotely because we're all at a six-foot distance, yeah. uh, and we need to respect that now. If our CDI team is still on site, we can always have a conversation with the doctor at meetings where we're six feet apart. I think that's totally the best case scenario. But of course, it's still, it's also okay to have a phone conversation. I just had a phone conversation yesterday teaching a, uh, a APRN uh, how to document pneumonia effectively. Now, it wasn't a COVID-19 pneumonia, but we just had a phone conversation where we talked through the nuances of, uh, of the specificity of pneumonia. And that's one way that we can do it. And so if you can get a, a telephone conversation, if you can get a go-to-meeting like this one that you have, you can educate remotely and it's very effective. It is, um, it is always less effective than in person because, you know, because of the interaction from person to person. Um, but at this perspective with the pandemic, it's best case scenario, I think. Absolutely. All right. Well, we appreciate it, Tim, and um, you've been kind enough to share this case study and I think a couple other things. So I'm going to point out at the end of the show to make sure to go back to the show notes for this program and take a look at some of the links Tim is providing. We do record all of our programs. We post them uh, on the Actus website. I'll show you guys where that lives now just so you have um, some perspective. So I'm going to navigate quickly back here to the Actus website. If you go under resources right in the middle here and you click on the Actus podcast, uh, you will find all of our shows archived here. We're going to be recording today's show as we always do. And, and again, take a look for a couple that uh, links that Tim is going to provide, one to a webinar, maybe one to one of your uh, tip sheets, Tim, after the program. So we thank you for that. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you, Brian. Yeah. Um, I wanted to spend just a couple minutes on our In the News segment. Uh, in the News, again, is a regular segment 
featuring the latest news and industry updates relevant to the CDI profession. Today I wanted to share what I thought was a fairly prov provocative column by uh, Dr. Milton Packer on MedPage Today. If you haven't read any of his prior articles, I'd recommend checking them out. Uh, obviously a physician, so I get the physician spin on some of the, the top news of the day. And this particular piece is entitled, Will Life in Medicine Go Back to Normal After COVID-19? So just like I mentioned with the show notes, um, I'll share the link there if you'd like to read the article in full or you can just Google the title here. But uh, so it's been a while since um, Dr. Packer had written a, a post and he writes, for the last six months, life's become too busy, had, hadn't had time to write anything of quality. Um, but essentially what he's talking about here is how people are dying to get back to the world of normality, you know, back in October or so, November before COVID-19 came and uh, turned the world upside down. But really what he's saying in this column is um, that world no longer exists. Our lives have been transformed in ways that we could not have possibly imagined. And so do we think we're going back to normal soon? And this is where I thought the column really gets interesting is that he, he is reminding folks that the world of normality, which we are longing for or think we're longing for, actually wasn't as normal and as sane and as um, easy to navigate as we thought. Uh, he describes that um, you may have forgotten that six months ago we lived in a dysfunctional world. As I described in nearly 100 essays that I posted to this column over a period of three years, the world of medicine was illogical, ineffective, outrageously expensive, self-serving, often mean-spirited. Healthcare providers were at the breaking point. We were, and I, and I do recall this, medical blogs were filled with vivid descriptions of psychic pain for physicians that are trying to navigate um, a lot of um, regulations and rules and trying to get their patients treated and paid and spending most of their time um, in the EHR documenting. So he wraps up with we're not going back and he has a few predictions about where he thinks we're going to be headed post COVID-19. He believes that it will dramatically accelerate societal recognition of healthcare as a right that it will trigger major changes to the medical insurance industry. Um, he thinks, but, and again, on the positive side, he, he does see some positive changes coming from this. He thinks it's an exceptional opportunity for medicine and science to regain the public trust, especially if we can get that antivirus um, vaccine out in the market. And also believes that it will change the way that physicians access and share medical information with with telemedicine really rising to the fore. And I, I think there is some opportunity here for CDI to get involved with uh, the, 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 the telemedicine um, mechanism of delivering care. We, we're gonna have a lot more on that coming up in the coming months. But uh, just curious what you thought of this column, Tim. Do you see things going back to normal? Do you see potentially some, I know it's hard to even think of a silver lining with COVID-19, but a way that Perhaps we could all be better uh, with the lessons we've learned from from the outbreak. Curious what your thoughts might Absolutely, be. Absolutely, Brian. I mean, I, I, I hate to say that pain is a wonderful teacher, but let's face it, if you fall down and skin your knee uh, or you touch a hot stove as a child, you don't do it again. 
And, and, and I think that there, there are things that we're all going to learn from this. I think we're going to learn uh, how, how to interact with people in a safe manner. I think the, the silver lining might be the influenza deaths have gone down because people aren't touching each other. And so COVID-19 isn't spreading the way that it might. And influenza itself, I think, is also by the same mechanism not having the impact so that that might be the silver lining that nobody's talking about is that the influenza the infection rate of influenza in 2020 will be interesting to see how it compares to 2019 um and the cdc tracks all of that um so that might be a silver lining i think telemedicine i think virtual uh uh, uh virtual meetings just like the one we're having right now will become much more accepted the other thing that i've talked about with m- many of my hospitals is that Physicians used to see hospitals and insurance companies as great big bastions of profit. And now the entire world sees that hospitals are really struggling right now. And I think that lends a bit of sympathy from the provider to the CDI team. So the CDI team is like, look, we're trying to help the hospital, make sure we can keep the hospital doors open. We need this hospital to provide services to the community. Our mission is to provide health care to the community. And so I think our physicians are becoming sympathetic to that through this media coverage of all of our healthcare entities having this tremendous financial strain from COVID-19. And honestly, I think that will put us all as a team. Now, the payers have also lessened their denials. They've increased their uh, comfort with sending people to skilled nursing facility, LTEC and IRF. They've removed Many payers have removed the scrutiny on that, at least in the short term. But we all expect that um, the payers are in the business of medicine. They're going to return to their previous level of high scrutiny, as they should. We need uh, uh, health care dollars to be spent wisely. And so I think those are the things that will come out of this that will be positive. I think the physicians seeing the hospital as a partner rather than uh, uh, kind of like big brother I think that the short term, the payers have been sympathetic to the hospitals. I think that will, of course, go back to the business side of medicine as we go forward. But certainly, I, I agree there will be major changes in everything we do because this is a historical virus. We've never seen anything like this in our lifetime. Absolutely. No, thanks, Tim. Appreciate the insight. I, I would agree with you. I think um, hopefully we we will see some some things go back, not just to normal, but to a, to a better place uh, post-COVID-19. Just to wrap Absolutely. up. Yeah, thanks, Tim, again. Just to wrap up quickly, I want to remind folks that our May-June edition of the CDI Journal is now published. Actus members can check that out on the website. Uh, we've got a great, our, our theme for this particular issue is Program Evolution, a Guide for Maturation. Uh, we also have, of course, some COVID-19 related articles here. But if you haven't checked out the journal, uh, go ahead and do that. Okay, well, that is going to do it for today's edition of the Actus podcast. We're going to be back here again in just one week. Um, we remain a, a little bit more. Uh, we're doing a few more shows these days as folks are home. So next week, we're back on Wednesday, May 20th for Cytokine Release Syndrome Codes, a success story. This will be an interesting show. We actually have the person who, if you haven't seen the 2021 IPPS rule yet, and we're going to be getting into that on the next show. The proposed rule just came out this week. 
Uh, one of the changes that's in there are there, there are some new cytokine release syndrome code, ICD-10 codes that if, if passed in the final rule will be effective October 1. We have the person who uh, got these codes through. So I'm um, very excited to, to bring you that show. Um, again, I want to thank Tim for his time on today's program. Excellent job, Tim. Please do check out the show notes. I'm going to be linking to a couple of additional resources that Tim has been kind enough to provide for us. So that'll do it. If you guys have any suggestions, as always, for future guests, ideas about the format of the show, please do send me an email at bmurphy at actus.org. We'll see you back here next week, folks. Uh, take care, and thanks again, Tim. Thank you, Thank Brian. You, Brian. Have a good week. Absolutely.